some of the most um, preached and portions of it, some of the most hotly debated in all of the Bible. Um, in, um, in terms of living out the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, and doing it successfully, that is surviving uh, as a believer, the content of these three chapters, these four chapters, are utterly crucial, in my opinion. Um, the focus shifts in uh, Romans 5.1 from the previous subject, which has, con- uh, which has been contained in the first four chapters of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Romans, in those four chapters, Paul is setting forth the great cardinal doctrine of justification by faith alone. You'll recall something as clear, perhaps, as, as Romans 3.28, where he says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That uh, one text was so important to me early on in my faith that, that it was so concisely and precisely and succinctly stated. Therefore we have concluded, we conclude, that a man is justified by faith completely apart from the works of the law. Well, um, that is his theme in uh, the first four chapters of this uh, letter to the Romans. But this new section opens with the word, therefore. Um, You know, sometimes I think that the whole secret, uh, if there is, I hate, if, if there is such a thing as a secret, the whole secret of Christian living is to know how to understand and properly use the word, therefore. Because it's a word of application. And what the, what the Bible is seeking to do is not simply present truth, but present truth in such a way that the people of God will know it, grasp it, believe it, and apply it. And so you find so often, though, particularly in the letters of Paul, you find this word, therefore, because Paul builds an argument and then bases application on the argument that he has just built. And so, uh, you've heard this before, this is almost hackneyed and trite, but... Um, that, that when you see the word, therefore, you must then be on the alert that there's about to be something that is going to be applied, something said that is in application of what has come prior to that word. So Paul has built this great argument in four chapters of Scripture, and then he commences this new section by saying, therefore, the Christian life in, in many ways is a, is a matter of applying logically and deductionally um, the truths that, that have just been taught. And Paul is a master logician. He's a master at, at, at stating things, building an argument, building a case, and then bringing us to the place where he says, all right, having, having stated that argument, here's what I want to say in response to what I've just built as a case, as an argument. So in, in light of what he has said in the first four chapters, in light of what he said in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul is showing in these following chapters, this next section, the next four chapters, he is outlining for us the inevitable deductions which can and should be drawn based on what has already been said. He has taught us in those four chapters this great doctrine of justification by faith, and now he is about to outline for us, as briefly as, as, as Paul ever does anything, the, the applications that, are, that can and must be made in response to that doctrine. Gang, um, 
um, Paul is tracing for us in these next four chapters the, the result of having been justified by faith. These are all statements and arguments that are being addressed to those people who have experienced that marvelous uh, introduction to the kingdom of God via the understanding of justification by faith. So, as I said earlier, living out the Christian life and doing so in a, or surviving is really, um, is really dependent in so many ways of our grasping the truths that he's about to give us in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, I understand, gang, that these next four chapters are aimed at us um, not, not to teach us any more, and there will be various places where the doctrine of justification of faith will come back up, but that's not what he's trying to teach now. It is the applications of that great doctrine to living out and flashing out Christian experience. So I hope you can understand how vital it is that we get it. Um, I said something Sunday morning, and I said it was profound, and it is profound. I did, it, it's a quote. I, I didn't make it up. Uh, I've told you once before, if it's not in a book or on a tape, I don't know it. But uh, this was another quote I found someplace where the man said that sanctification, which is what you and I are wrestling with now as a believer, sanctification is simply the art of getting used to our justification. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see that. That is, Paul has stated for us in four chapters, as fully and as completely and as comprehensively as anybody has ever stated at this doctrine of justification by faith, and now we're about to launch into the subject of sanctification, and you're going to see, I hope, that sanctification is just the art of us getting used to the great provisions of justification. Us becoming comfortable with this marvelous thing known as justification by faith. Now, before we get to all of that, what I want to try and do as we introduce this chapter is give you kind of a panorama before we look into, before we jump into verse 1. And I, I think we can get to verse 1 this, tonight because it's one that you love. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one that many of you have memorized. And, and I should point out, uh, to make, hopefully make this clear, having been justified by faith. That Greek verb there is in the aorist tense, which means Paul is describing an event that took place in the past. Now, all I'm saying is, he is assuming from now on, he's talking to an audience in which this has already taken place someplace in your past. Therefore, having been justified by faith, do you understand the great ramifications of that truth in terms of our living in our, our Christian life? Now, but before we get to that, let me, let me give you kind of panorama of what Paul does in these next four chapters, this next section of the book of Romans. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that, that Paul is up to something in these next four chapters that we can kind of grasp uh, as a unit, that is, um, that he has a primary concern, 
And that primary concern in these next four chapters is to show us the, the absolute character, the, the fullness and the finality of the salvation that we've enjoyed. Um, he's, he's, in, he's concerned that we understand fully the ramifications of justification by faith and the finality and the certainty and the, and the fullness that grows out of understanding that doctrine. Again, um, what you're about to see in these next four chapters, which is going to take us about a couple, two years, um, what you're going to see in these four chapters is the greatest description and presentation of grace that is found any place in the Bible. Because what Paul is working out is, now having been justified, do you understand all of the rich fullness of that thing and what it means to us as we live out a Christian experience? And so what you're going to get is this marvelous presentation of grace living in a world and context and life of grace. Now, the reason I say that covers four chapters is I want you to notice something. He begins by saying, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, stick, keep your finger there and turn over to Romans 8. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus uh, who, do not, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now, my, what I'm suggesting is this. That Paul introduces this, this subject in Romans 5.1. He returns to that theme in Romans 8.1. And in between, we get Romans 6 and 7, of course where we find Paul addressing the two great problems of grace. For instance, the, one of the biggest problems in understanding grace is this uh, subject that he introduces in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? That is, in chapter 6, Paul is dealing with abuses of grace. Chapter 7 he takes a long time to treat this subject of the role, the, the, the real role of the law. And so in 6 and 7, Paul is dealing with, with the two major objections to grace. One of them is, Jimmy, if you preach grace, you're going to encourage people to sin. That's what he deals with in chapter 6. In chapter 7, is okay if we're supposed to live under grace. What role, if any, does the law play? He deals with that subject in 6 and 7 while bracketing those two things in this introduction in chapter 5 and chapter 8 of the fullness and finality and absolute character of justification by faith and its provisions for us. And then he concludes that section with this unbelievably rich statement at the close of uh, chapter 8. Um... um that, that, oh, in verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul is doing in four chapters. is trying to communicate the fullness and finality of one's 
understanding and relationship to God because of the richness of what justification means. And so I say again, ladies and gentlemen, having been justified by faith, living that thing out in the in a life of a Christian until glory, this whole thing in the middle of trying to, to, to become what we call sanctification, that sanctification is simply the art of getting used to justification. And that's what he's doing in this. I mean, again, now he's going to parenthetically take us aside in chapter 6 and 7 and deal with some problems of the, to his, what he's teaching. But chapter 5 and chapter 8 are these bookends what his, and which, which demonstrate his primary concern in this section is that we understand um, the rich provisions that come to us because of the gospel that we preach, which is one of justification by faith alone. Guys, I've said this to you. I said it to you when we were in chapter 4. But the gospel is far better news than we ever dreamed. And what I hope you're going to see in these, these chapters is, oh my, I never knew of its richness. I never knew of its fullness. I never knew of its finality, like he has explained to me here in these, these chapters. So, that's, um, um, that I hope gives you some kind of sense of where Romans 5, 6, and, 5, 6 7, and 8 fit into the, the scheme of what Paul is doing with this whole book of Romans. He's worked out justification by faith, and now he's about to work out the the applications of that doctrine in the life of the believer. And may I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, they are rich. So, having said all that by way of introduction, let's dive into verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, let me read two verses. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also... We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, in these two verses, Paul mentions three things that justification by faith does for us. Justification by faith does three things for the, in the life of the believer. Number one, it gives us, it establishes peace between me and God, between us and God. The second thing it does, really mentioned in verse 2, which we'll get to next week, um, is that justification by faith, uh, that is, uh, we have access by faith into this grace. Justification by faith puts us into the place of um, receiving all of that which God pours out on His people. We have access by faith into this grace. That is, all of this blessing that God showers on His people, we now, having been justified by faith, now have access to all that which God provides. Thirdly, what justification by faith does is that, uh, uh, let me read it, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's the third thing that he, that he specifies, is that justification by faith enables us to, um, to glory in this prospect of final future glorification. If we rightly understand justification by faith, we can commence celebration uh, over this glory that is going to be ours. 
Now, we'll get to those other two things next week in verse 2, but let's concentrate on the first thing that Paul mentions, which comes as the result of having been justified by faith. He mentions it in verse 1. We have peace with God. Now, before I go too far with that, I, I just want you to notice something that I think is important. I've said there are three things that are the results of being justified. Uh, peace with God. And the second thing, we have access by faith into this grace. All of these blessings that are ours, we now have gained access into those. But it's important, I think, and I think it's significant how Paul, the, the order that Paul gives those things. He says, first of all, you have peace with God. Secondly comes the blessings of that relationship with God. Uh, in evangelicalism, ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I think sometimes when we present the gospel, what we are doing is telling people that the reason that they ought to come to Christ is that there's a lot of good things that are in store for them if they do. There's all kinds of, you know, you get a friend that uh, sticks closer than a brother, you get your forgiveness of sin, and you get, you know, you get to go to heaven, etc., etc. Well, Paul doesn't start like that. He doesn't start outlining all of the wonderful blessings that are going to be yours if you become a Christian. No. What he says is that primarily what the gospel does, what justification by faith does, is establish peace between you and God. Which means that prior to that moment, there wasn't any peace. And if there wasn't any peace, there must have been war. There must have been conflict. There must have been difficulty. But gang, none of that blessing stuff comes to, uh, comes to us from God until we are reconciled to Him. You know, um, there is a statement that became quite controversial several, several years ago. Some of you might remember the controversy. Um, it's in John chapter 9. I, you don't need to turn there, but it's in John 9, 31. Do you remember the man, uh, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. His name was Bailey Smith. He's a good guy, dear brother. Uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And he made a statement someplace in public that God does not hear the prayer of the Jews. Remember that controversy? And boy, did he get raked over the coals in the media. That God does not hear the prayer of the Jews. Well, um, th there's a statement here in John 9, verse 31, that we're, uh, where we're told, Now, we know that God does not hear sinners. Now, um, it was unfortunate that that became such a, uh, a media um, controversy. But there is a statement here that suggests that Mr. Smith may know exactly what he's talking about. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, um, before we can discuss anything about blessing with God, we must first consider this whole question of our standing, of our status, of our relationship in position with God. Um, a man who starts with the blessing is really misguided, ladies and gentlemen. Um, how can I ask God for anything if I'm not reconciled to Him, if peace has not been established between us. You know, I, um, I, I maybe hinted to this story before, but, you know, I do a, I do a wedding ceremony, um, did one this weekend, and, and I have a, a section in, in my wedding ceremony that for some uh, tends to be 
uh, controversial. Now, it's not very controversial to me, but maybe that's because I'm a bigot and uh, narrow-minded. Um, but I, um, you know, the, the little couple comes up in all of their regalia and, and their splendor, and I, um, I do this little thing about uh, marriage, and, and God did it, and it's his invention. And, and then I pray, and then I say, who is it that gives this woman to be the wife of this man? And the daddy says, her mother and I do. They always say that. And, and, um, and then he goes and sits down. And then I, they all step up, and I, I commence my wedding ceremony. And I commence it by asking, are you a true believer in our Lord Jesus Christ? And have you received him as your personal Savior and Lord? And are you right now living a life with an effort to be conformed to his image? You remember that enough? Um, I, I, I ask that question of the bride, and I ask it of the groom. And then I lift up my eyes, and I say... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, most of what I will say today will be aimed at the bride and the groom, but for a moment I'd like to speak with you. Why do I start like that? Why do I start by saying, are you a true believer in our Lord Jesus Christ? Is he the master of your life, and are you right now living a life with an effort to be conformed to his image? Remember, let me tell you, that portion in my wedding ceremony gets me in lots of trouble. Did I tell you the time a couple came in to see me, and, and it was about ten days before their wedding? And no, it was about it was about three weeks before their wedding, and um, it was premarital counseling, and we were just uh, you know just having the greatest time, and and I was just enjoying my counseling, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the guy was just rocked back in a chair, and he was kind of relaxed and having a good time, and he says <laughs> he says to me, um, you know, uh, she sure doesn't look like much when she first gets up in the morning. <laughs> And I thought, oh, well, I'll just let that go. And, and, um, and, and then about, I mean, I didn't ask any questions. I didn't ask leading questions. I didn't ask intrusive questions. I didn't do anything. I just sat there. And, and then he said, um, um, yeah, well, you know, the other morning when I got up and she was cooking breakfast in there, and man, I just thought, oh. And I thought, oh, no. I said, um, wait a minute. Are you two living together? He said, Yeah. And I said, Well, you've got a very significant choice that you face. Because I'm about to stand up before a lot of people and ask them, Are you right now living a life with an effort to be conformed to his image? And I take that very seriously. Either you move out and, um, we postpone this thing and uh, establish some measure of repentance or you're going to have to find somebody else to marry you. Well, that was not exactly a very popular thing to say. In fact, he was furious. Got up and stormed out of my office and then, you know, I'm quivering behind my door and, and um, he comes back in comes back in and I mean I thought he was going to take a swing at me but I, I tell you that story ladies and gentlemen to say this I stand before people at a wedding and I say are you a true believer is Jesus the Lord of your life and are you living a life with an effort to be conformed to his image you know I know we're all failing you know I'm not looking I'm not saying are you a perfect human being I'm just saying is it your desire to please Jesus with your life that's all I want to know and they say, yes, yes. And I, and I turn to the audience and I say, you know, I want you to understand why I asked that question. The reason I asked the question is, in the next few minutes, in this wedding ceremony, I'm about to call upon God to pour out His richest blessings on these two people. 
I'm about to ask him to come alongside and make them, or enable them to make their vows work. I'm about to ask God to, to so bless this man as a husband and so bless this woman as a wife that they can put this thing together in a way that it will be gloriously happy for both of them. I'm about to ask God to come alongside and be kind to them. And I have no right to do that. To two peoples who are at war with him. Ladies and gentlemen, the first blessing of justification is that peace is established. The war's over. I'm at peace with God. There's no blessing that comes until peace is established. And when peace is established, then I say with God, Boldness and pleasure and privilege. God, would you please pour out your richest kindness on these two beautiful little people standing in front of me? Would you, Father? Would you give them everything they need to make this marriage work? Because, Father, they're one of your sons and one of your daughters. But if they ain't, I'm going to stand up there and ask God to pour out His richest kindnesses on two people who are at war with Him. Gang, blessing doesn't come first. Blessing comes on the heels of there being reconciliation with God. Blessing is poured out once the, the, the battle is over. The primary business of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is not to give us blessings. The primary business of the gospel is to reconcile us to God. What is in view in uh, Romans 5.1 is not the peace of God. And you must keep those things distinct, ladies and gentlemen. Philippians 4 talks about the peace of God will be uh, yours. We're not talking about the peace of God here. This is not that wonderful position where there's a sense of spiritual serenity. This is not the peace of God. This is peace with God. And our primary need is reconciliation with the God that was offended by our sin. The primary need is to have that relationship restored. The primary need is not peace at home. It is not peace at the office. The primary need is peace with God. Um, our, our lives are complex, ladies and gentlemen, and they're troublesome, and uh, they're born, man is born for trouble and Sparks fly upward, aren't we? <laughs> Gosh, if uh, yours isn't, then let me just tell you mine is. Um, maybe I deserve it because I'm so much more of a sinner than the rest of you. But, guys, the gospel is not preparing me to withstand my problems. The gospel prepares me to withstand judgment day. It establishes peace between me and the Father. Um, and, and you must know that the peace that's in view here is an objective peace. It is one that exists whether we feel it or not. 
when the Father declares us righteous, ladies and gentlemen, peace has been established, even though you don't have nice feelings of that peace. I wish we, we did, um, but it's an objective peace. It is not a subjective peace. Peace with God, guys, involves two people. That is, God and man. Something must happen on both sides uh, before peace is restored. And to make peace, something had to be done with the wrath of God. And something was done with, another, with the wrath of God. It was poured out on a Savior. And because the wrath of God is now satisfied, I now am at peace with God. God has made peace for a sinner such as I. Guys, um, prior to justification, all of us were at war with this God. But no more. Um, the enmity is done. The peace is established. But you, you can see by way of implication, I think, that there's no third posture. There's no in-between. It is either peace with God or war. Um, prior to justification, there's war. Um, after justification, peace. God is no longer upset with me. Now, um, let me give you four quick things and I'm finished. In terms of um, what does being at peace with God mean to me practically? That is, a man who is at peace with God, what is the condition like? There's four things I'd like to mention and close with a verse and we're finished. But first of all, um, a, a man who is at peace with God now has a mind who is at peace about his relationship with God. That is, all those nights and that lost sleep about whether I'm, uh, God is angry with me should be over for those of us been justified by faith. Our minds are at rest over uh, my relationship with God. Secondly, uh, he is a man who, in his heart of heart, knows that God's lo God loves him, even in the face, even I I despite the fact that he knows so really that he's a sinner. He knows that this God loves him. Thirdly, in, in one of the things that, that I think is so vitally important for us to live successfully as Christians, a man who understands justification by faith and is at peace with God is a man who can answer his own conscience. And a man who can answer all of the accusations that will be leveled at him, leveled at him in the course of his life by the devil. He is a man who can handle his own gnawing conscience and the offense that Satan will throw up in the course of living out a Christian life. Peace with God means the result of, of having been justified by faith means that I can deal with the gnawings of my own conscience. When uh, Satan wants to whisper in my ear that I'm really no different. A lot of that comes, ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of great moral failure. 
What do you think David heard at the night uh, at nighttime when he had just uh, had Uriah killed? Do you think anybody something was ever whispered in his ear that you're really not real, David? I, I suggest that perhaps so. And some of that gets whispered in your ears when there's been failure. Um, one of the things that peace with God does is allow us to handle our own conscience. And fourth and finally, we no longer fear. Men who are at peace with God no longer fear judgment or death. Uh, those two things have been quieted because I now sense and know that justification has made me, has brought me to peace with God. Let me read you one verse and I'll quit. Uh, don't turn, uh, but you might want to write it down because it's a great text. Isaiah 32. Uh, listen to this. The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. <laughs> One more time. The work of righteousness, the outcome of now being declared righteous, the work of righteousness will be peace. Peace established between me and the God, the God who I offended. The effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. The calming and the, ser the serenity of the soul of man. Ladies and gentlemen, the first benefit of having been justified by faith is that peace is now established. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for this glorious Gospel that I am privileged to preach. I thank You for the people who find its discussion their great heart's longing and I pray, O oh God, that the richness and finality and fullness of this gospel will turn us into people who are so quieted, whose souls are so serene, that it produces a greater breadth and length and width to our expressions of love for Christ. Thank you, O oh God, for the, um, the, the salvation that you provided. It is, no, it is not a, a quick fix. It is a complete and final and full and absolute provision. Might your people learn to glory in its fullness. Now dismiss us with a sense of your ownership. We want to walk out of here knowing, O oh God, that you are ours and we are yours. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.